everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be having a discussion with Dr. Gavin Eshenden, who is a British Catholic layman, author, and commentator, and associate editor of the Catholic Herald. He was formerly a priest of the Church of England and subsequently an Anglican bishop before leaving that church, which he is now very critical of. Those of you who have been following the news on the Church of England will know that the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, is currently advocating uh, for the blessing of same-sex union inside uh, the Church of England. Ashenden, very interestingly, also served as the chaplain to Queen Elizabeth II for quite a number of years and has a lot of insights into monarchy in the United Kingdom due to that experience. I've wanted to have a discussion with him about a whole bunch of these issues, the intersection of monarchy and faith, uh, what his view of the current House of Windsor is. Since we had our discussion, I see now, too, that King Charles III, who has yet to be crowned, has earmarked an LGBTQ choir for the coronation, which shows another distinct shift away from his mother's previous position. Not, of course, uh, particularly surprising when you consider the fact that the Church of England under Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, is moving in this direction. In fact, uh, a church that once frowned upon divorce is now a church that smiles upon same-sex relationships, and as such, the monarchy, which is formerly, formally associated with the Church of England, can hardly uh, be blamed for following in some ways. So to discuss all of these things, monarchy in the modern age, and a religious monarchy in a post-Christian age. This is my conversation with Dr. Gavin Ashenden. Yeah, so just kind of introduce yourself a little bit. What's uh, what's your background? What's your path from there to here? Uh, so my, my background um, biographically is that uh, I trained as a lawyer as a young man. I had an evangelical Protestant conversion to Christianity or reconversion back to the church. Uh, I became an Anglican priest for about 40 years. And during that period of time, about a third of it, I was a parish priest in London. And uh, two thirds of it, I was an academic senior lecturer in the psychology of religion at our, one of our most radical universities. Uh, I went through a Jordan. I was a bit like Jordan Peterson in the sense that we were, we were both dealing with the same subjects. And when he wrote his first book, I went, Ha, that's the book I wanted to write. He got there first and did it so much better, of course. But we were we were dealing with the same areas. And um, I went through a, a, a period when, like Peterson, I was very much enamored with Carl Gustav Jung, uh, but partly because he was an antidote to the basic Freudian ideas that my academic colleagues were hiding behind. Um, and then I, I found myself uh, having to rethink um a whole series of of ethical issues in Christianity. So I was doctrinally orthodox, but I'd become ethically heter ethically heterodox, mm. particularly with in view in terms of my understanding of sexuality. Um, and I had to revisit it because one of the things that happens if your if your worldview has got points at which it stresses and strains and doesn't match reality. You either have to change reality or your worldview. If your take on reality is is fairly well grounded, then you have to change the way you interpret it. So I found myself reinterpreting the whole business of human sexuality and coming back to an orthodox Christian standpoint. 
Um, hmm. That was quite problematic in terms of my work in university because you can't have an orthodox Christian view on sexuality and remain employed. Uh, so even though this was about 2010, I realized I was going to have to resign to avoid being sacked. I didn't want to be sacked. I'd done I'd done 25 years of good work and and um if you know if you're dismissed from a post for whatever reason, it always it always throws up a question mark. So I knew I had to resign if I was going to keep faithful to uh to our Lord and to Orthodox faith. Uh I was asked to become a continuing Anglican bishop, which I did in order to try and see if there was a way of reconfiguring some orthodox anglican resistance in these in these islands uh and it became clear to me after about four or five years that that wasn't going to work because we lacked the catholic magisterium um and there are a number of reasons why if, if you're dealing with with uh, different leaders with different theologies with different vested interests with different political pressures uh, you can't just have the bible to draw everyone together because there are too many ways of of interpreting texts which is why there are thousands of Protestant denominations uh, and so uh, I, I was becoming increasingly Catholic, partly because of my experience of the Eucharistic miracles and also uh, the apparitions of Our Lady. And 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 one of the strange things that happened was that the devil had attacked me quite vigorously in that period of time. And one of the one of the effects that has is to drive you more deeply into an Orthodox faith because you have to find ways of dealing with this this profoundly disturbing uh, element. And so all those things combined to take me to the edge of the Catholic faith. And then the local bishop asked me if I would, I would um, uh, change teams and come and join them. And, and it was clearly the right moment to do so. So since then, I've been working as a Catholic layman, uh, doing what I do on the internet. And, um, uh, oh, and in the middle of it, I became chaplain to the Queen for eight years. That's that's also yes. <laughs> so what 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 does that position, chaplain to the queen, constitute? It's very hard to explain to anyone who isn't English because it, <laughs> it it's it's um, not because there's anything wrong with not being English, but because English society works uh, in a particularly um, uh, semiotic way. It's full of signs and signals and cultural messages uh, which are different from reality. We're back to theory and reality being different. So, for example, a lot of people think that the monarchy has some level of power in this country, mm -hmm. but it was stripped of its power 400 years ago, and all the power was taken by parliament. So it looks quite powerful. It looks very grand. And if you'd seen the Queen's funeral, you'd have thought this was a powerful family. In, in fact, it has no power at all. Um, it's purely symbolic. It's there as a kind of mythic drama that expresses something of our national identity through the last few hundred years of history. Um, and it used to be when the royal chaplains were originally constituted, they had a very important function. They they were Catholic chaplains to a Catholic monarch. And one of the things they did was to celebrate mass. They accompanied the, the monarch wherever they went uh, to different palaces, to different castles, to different battles. And there was a whole household of, of chaplains celebrating mass. So when, it, when the monarch became, became Protestant, what did you do with all these mass priests? And the answer was they turned them into a kind of club, a preaching club. It's based at one of the palaces, St. James's Palace. And so it became a, a civic honour um, more than a function. And then uh, in the way in which the politics of the Church of England works, if, if, if it looks like you're going to be promoted to a senior 
role of responsibility. They often make you a chaplain to the Queen early as a kind of signal you're going somewhere. And if they make if they make you a chaplain to the Queen late in life, it's a signal you might have gone somewhere, but too bad you didn't quite make it. Have have this instead. And and you know, you hang around the royal family, you dress in a scarlet cassock like a cardinal. Uh, you um, you go to tea parties, you go to, to various functions, and and you're there as really as part of um, uh, part of a, a, a don't use the word pantomime because that's 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 rude, but part of a theatrical embellishment to a complex constitutional position. It it, it looks good, but it doesn't do very much. However. You do get opportunities to speak to the royal family, to the ladies in waiting, to the staff and so on. And if they like you and you're there for a while, then then you have opportunities to develop conversations. And as it happened in my case, the Prince Philip and my father were shipmates on North Sea Convoy. They were both naval lieutenants in the same ship for a period of time. So my dad knew Philip before he married the Queen. And and that meant that when I met Philip at, at, um, at Royal events we, we had something in common so that 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 made it a little bit more real than it would have been otherwise so because of the unique moment that were for the royal family that we're unfolding in right now i have more questions on that than i would have ordinarily but the 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 character and disposition sure. and 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 just sort of what the royal family was like is obviously um part of a very one-sided conversation coming from the us and thus far confronted by total silence from from your side of the pond but when <laughs> when you see everything that's going on um what was your experiences with the royal family like did you did you meet all of the individual members what was your uh, what was your sort of day to day in that role well again the the question it's not exactly the right question i'm not criticizing you for asking it you need to ask it but um the fact is that the royal family um they're very rich but they're but they're very imprisoned they all play a role in a very complex institution in which they have almost no freedom so there's a trade-off between personal freedom and uh and independence or autonomy and and the very famous and ornate role they play in national affairs um and one of the things that harry hasn't really got his head around is that if you are a member of the royal family you want to stay part of the royal family you give up your freedom that's what you do that's the deal i mean there are lots of elements to the deal but that's at the heart of it um so it's very odd that he <laughs> He continues to complain uh, that he was that he and Meghan were in some way constrained. Of course, they were constrained. That's when Meghan married into the royal family. That was the deal, um, and it's impossible to believe that that it, they, they weren't told that. They, they might not have heard it, but um, but they were certainly have been told it. It's it's uh, one of the most obvious things uh, in our in our national life. So, but so when you say, "Did I meet them?" I did meet them, but we all played a role. So we all had staged conversations in staged places at staged events and sometimes particularly uh, as a chaplain if they liked you and you liked them and a degree of trust developed then you'd have private conversations but then if you had private conversations unlike harry you wouldn't talk about it <laughs> because because they would have had a confidential nature so yes i did have some private conversations which of course i won't talk about um but most of the role was a was a kind of public formality um, in which we were all we all played uh, a theatrical part. So one of the things I'm very interested, starting starting with the the recently deceased Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth II, but then working on to the current monarch because it's much more relevant now, is 
there's been a lot of, of discussion about uh, Prince Philip's level of biblical knowledge, for example, that he was very interested in religion. And of course, uh, Queen Elizabeth II's faith was was sort of primarily front and center in all of her Christmas messages. And purportedly, Philip is the one who encouraged her to do that. What was the the nature of the religious faith of, of Prince Philip, uh, if he had any, and, and Queen Elizabeth II? Well, there are two ways of answering this. I mean, the, the first and most honest answer is we don't know. We literally don't know because we can infer things. Mm -hmm. We can reasonably infer them, and we're probably right, but we don't know because um, because they didn't talk about it. <laughs> they partly didn't talk about it because it was a generational thing, a cultural thing. Uh, English people of that generation didn't talk much about religion, which is seen as being a highly private affair. So the Queen, for example, would have had two elements to her own religiosity. One would have been the role she played in public uh, as the supreme governor of the church. And again, the reality is not the same as the words. The words sound like she has some levers she can pull to make things happen. But actually, supreme governor is a title that was that, that, that King Henry VIII used in order to displace the Pope. And the power that he had by in those days has been completely dissipated and there is no power anymore. So once again, it's she so the, the first part of her religiosity would be that she was a figurehead for the established church, and therefore she went to church a lot. Doesn't tell you anything about her privately. But we knew don't we do know about her privately because as time went by, uh, she began to to speak. The the inner Elizabeth found a voice during her Christmas broadcasts and there are other moments like the, the visit of Billy Graham where she was quite clearly at ease and we know from what he wrote and from what she has said on occasions that it was a very real relationship and they they, they both saw eye to eye so we know that 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 her faith developed we also know from things that have been written about her that she was brought up to say her prayers and a sense of Christian duty permeated everything she did um, so there are things we can surmise about her and they're they're very they're very straightforward and a fairly a fairly sacramentally low church Anglican setting. She did her duty. She had a real love of God. She understood the Christian faith and she lived it. But she lived it privately rather than publicly. Publicly, she lived the formal role of the head of the, of the titular head of the church. But as it happens, these two things came together in parallel. Philip is more complicated. Um, uh, and he's partly because he adopted the Anglican faith because he married his wife, and not out of conviction at all. Um, but he'd had, but his family had had uh, some real relationship with the Greek Orthodox Church, and as part of his own cultural background. Now it's much easier to be Greek Orthodox culturally and sort of your heritage, and it's it's a ortho, orthodoxy is a uh, is much closer to a nationalistic religion than many other uh, forms of of the Christian faith. So this clearly had a, a hold on him, and we know from his visits to, um, to to Mount Athos, and we also know from his library, and we know from his personal conversations, that he was very interested indeed in it, and it, and it began to grow more important to him. Now, again, we have to surmise, because the conversations he had would, would have been private, and so none of the private conversations have leaked, but we do know that he took it very seriously. And uh, he was a he was a, 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 a gruff no-nonsense, entrepreneurial, innovative, dynamic man's man who, who lived a very, very difficult life as a prisoner in the institution. 
but managed it with a great deal of dry wit all the time, dry wit, good humor and, and devotion to his wife. And that was what got him through. So what we have in the in the Queen and Prince Philip is in terms of character and faith is very, very different from what we have in their children and grandchildren. And that, you know, that's beginning to emerge now as, as the as the cookie crumbles. So before I move on to to the next generation, I can't help I can't help but ask just because uh, I, I've I've seen uh, a, what then Prince Charles and, and and Camilla they came to Ottawa for the 150th anniversary of of Canada's founding, and I saw uh, William and Kate when they came to the Calgary Stampede over a decade ago, but I never had the uh, the pleasure of of uh, of seeing. Um, Queen Elizabeth II or, or Prince Philip, and and you spent a lot of time around them. So, what was your sense of just what they were like? Was what what, what was it like to be around them? Well, again, they had two parts to them. They had they had the part they played in public. So, the the Queen, for example, would always have stock series of questions she asked anybody, and protocol was that she drove the conversation. So, not many people would be able to say to the Queen. Hey, your match, how are you doing today? And that was that was something you you didn't do. But she would say, Hello, who are you? Where do you come from? And what are you doing here? And so most of the conversations she had day in, day out were were those kind of conversations designed to put someone at their ease, to make them feel that, that they were a matter of interest and they were important. And she did that very well. From behind the scenes, the real Elizabeth Windsor was a um uh, was an upper 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 class English woman who loved horses and dogs uh, and her family and uh, was a sort of that kind of a woman. But but that was that that didn't come out onto the public stage. That was you had to dig that out through. Well, they did occasional film documentaries, and obviously you could see her enjoying herself at the box. She loved horses. She took a huge interest in them. She was very good at it. Her daughter, uh, Princess Anne, was an immensely competent horsewoman. So they had a kind of private private life of things they enjoyed doing as a family and as individuals, which they uh, managed to slip into their public duties from time to time. But essentially their public duties masked who they were as people. Moving when when you take a look at the the second generation, when it comes to um, people like like say Prince Philip, one of the things he was quite famous for amongst those who had conversations with him was his, for example, biblical literacy. We know he had a great interest in religion, specifically. Um, Queen Elizabeth II obviously was a very religious person. A lot of doubt gets injected when you start moving to the next generation and, and for, for obvious reasons. So we don't need to relitigate any of the current monarchs sort of, you know, public sorted spectacles that unfolded for, for well over a decade. But just even in the, in the recent news now, there seems to be no any indication uh, that the children of Charles have any particular um, religious views, you know, Harry contacting his mother through a medium, uh, those sorts of things, right? They're very sort of new agey, if anything, moralistic therapeutic deism would probably be a decent description of it. But when you look at the the children of the queen, uh, would would it be accurate to say that religion remained much like the monarchy, uh, a sort of trapping that they they could put on and put off and didn't impact their personal lives, or is that unfairly maligning what may be deeply held religious convictions on their part? Well, we have to surmise again because um, unless they tell us, we don't know. When well, we can we can make a judgment from the way they behave. Uh, and from and from uh, and from relaxed conversation, but 
I think it's quite clear to say to see that amongst um, amongst Elizabeth's children, uh, if there is any piety, it's very private and it's and it's hidden. I mean, uh, you know, they're they're very different. Edward and Andrew are very are very different from Charles and Anne. Um, and uh, again, I I knew them a bit, um, but. Um, I think we have to say they're formed by the culture of the second half of the 20th century. And, you know, we, uh, Elizabeth I was famous for saying she didn't want to make a window into anyone's soul to peer in and ask questions. I think we we can't make windows into their soul either. We don't know if they say get on their knees and say their prayers at night. Uh, and it isn't their job to parade their inner spirituality in public affairs anyway. That wouldn't be part of what they are supposed to do. They go to church, they appear to say their prayers, uh, they have mixed ethical results like all of us do, um, and uh, it would be open to them to speak more clearly about Jesus, about the church, about the gospel, and about faith, if they were minded to. Um, and that doesn't happen, so that means we don't know. But but we can we can guess that the fire of faith may not be turned up very high. What we don't know is how low it is. Because the the thing about about the the, the spare speeches delivered by the royal family is that it, you know entire committees work on these things, and so any yeah. messages that any messages that are sent are sent very deliberately. It's why it was so immediately noted that 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 the queen decided to include references, explicit references to Christianity, and then of course the funeral readings that were selected. Right, it was her who selected the prime minister to read one of the least ecumenical verses in the New Testament um, about the, uh, about about Christ being the only way. And she left no yes. doubt whatsoever. Yep. She left no doubt whatsoever throughout the, throughout the funeral that essentially it was probably the most widely televised, um, um, widely televised proclamation of the gospel in human history. If you believe the numbers of people who watched it, and then you look at the texts and the readings and, and the songs that were selected. But then when, when you shift over, I find Charles to be kind of interesting because he's often, I think, somewhat misread. They, people talk about him as as very modern, and, and in comparison to his mother, he certainly is. At the same time, he's very much a traditionalist in other ways and is very devoted to traditions, whether that be in architecture, whether that be um, to the English countryside. So he's kind of trapped between being, you know, written off as somebody who who impedes progress if you look at his personal tastes, but then also as, you know, uh, somebody who is hopelessly modern in relation to his mother. What do you make of uh, of of King Charles III? Well, I think first of all, he's like an iceberg. Ninety percent of what he does is hidden, and people don't know about. Mm -hmm. One of the most impressive parts of his work has been. Uh, the Prince's Trust, which has done the most enormous amount of good for kids in the inner city. And you, and the, the reason we don't know about it is because what we hear about them is what the newspapers publish and the media outlets publish. And on the whole, they're mainly interested in bad news and not particularly interested in good news. So a great deal of the good news that uh, he would deserve to be held accountable for, we just don't hear. You have to go looking for it. And like you, I agree. Um, he has a whole series of interests. I mean, He's he's much more ecologically minded than I would say the science suggests, but that's going to hold him in quite good stead for popularity. Um, he's had some very sensible views about architecture, uh, and we know about those because the architects have been very, very cross with him. 
He's tried to have conversations behind the scenes with various ministers, and we know that because they've leaked his letters and accused him of, of being of meddling, to which his answer is, well, you know, if if trying to do my duty and to do good using my using my resources, my responsibility is meddling, then yes, I meddle. And and he doesn't he can't win either way. Um, but I think we have to give him credit for trying hard and achieving a great deal. But in terms of Christianity, it was quite clear early on that he was influenced very powerfully by a man called Lawrence van der Post, who was one of Carl Jung's most prominent disciples. Um, and he became a Jungian, essentially, really quite early on, and a good deal of his views are consistent with that, but particularly religious views. And so Jung was a kind of semi-Gnostic, semi-occultist, psychic, uh, psychiatric, uh, sub-Christian, and has produced a very powerful worldview, which... Uh, has taken over our whole culture. So, I mean, I would say until about 1980, 1985, maybe 1990, Freud probably um, coloured coloured our culture in the in the West, uh, primarily psychologically. But from 1995, he gave way to Carl Gustav Jung, and all the language you have about people reaching their their full potential uh, is all is all a popularised view of Jungian individuation, for which there was no science, and it was it was part of it was part of a sort of Jungian narcissistic fantasy about the human being taking the place of God. In fact, although Jung used a great deal of Christian language, he meant by it something entirely different. So for him, God had a small g, and it was to do with the development of the self. And that, and you know, in the last in the last thirty years, the development of the self has been one of our primary religious cultural instincts in both America, North America, and Europe. Um, now, Charles is part of that. He's always said he was, and he has taken, he signaled he was by saying he wanted to defend faith in general. And the reason he did that was because Jung thought that faith was absolutely essential for providing a, a sort of semiotic efficiency to the healing of the consciousness and the unconsciousness. And that's what faith did. So faith had a therapeutic and a psychologically therapeutic purpose. And uh, and that's partly why Charles has taken it over. However, it's nothing to do with Christianity. Nothing to do with Islam, nothing to do with Judaism. It's a, just a generic attitude to the way in which world world views are developed. Um, and there's no evidence that Charles has moved from being a Jungian to being a Christian. So I wrote an article looking at his first, first Christmas speech saying that although it was every sentence was well-crafted, every, every sentence answered a kind of public interest question. And it quite clearly had been worked on by a lot of people for a very long time. And it was very well done. <laughs> But it was a speech of, a, of an outsider to the faith, not an insider. And I think one of the reasons that matters is because the monarchy is essentially a Christian concept. Uh, and all the promises, all the liturgy, all the, the history uh, and all the accoutrements are all Christian. And I think if you have somebody who's holding the office, but is self-evidently dogmatically not a Christian, that's going to produce a level of stress that after a while will begin to show. And I would expect to see a tear in the fabric. Now, whether that tear comes during Charles's lifetime or during William's, I have no way of knowing. It depends upon the stresses. But we have to remember that in terms of the of the kind of new cultural movement that swept the West in terms, we, we might call it cultural Marxism or progressivism. But, you know, the whole die culture, diversity, inclusion and equality, nothing is less 
synonymous with that than the idea of monarchy. There is nothing less diverse, less inclusive and less equal than monarchy. So it's got a problem. And I think one of the ways in which they're addressing the problem is to try and make it as, as green as possible, as, as uh, accessible as possible, as popular as possible. And that's partly where Charles's interfaith comes. But I think that's a short-term solution which won't hold, we won't allow the institution to hold together for very long under the stresses and strains that will inevitably be imposed upon it. The other difficulty, though, is, you know, he he had always said uh, that he wanted to be defender of faith as opposed to defender of, of, of the faith. But the difficulty with that is just if you look at the Church of England today, there's not a whole lot of faith left to be defended anyways. And so you wonder if if that title itself has become meaningless, not from the side of the monarch, but from the side of the the church that it, it it's purportedly there to defend, right? The Archbishop of Canterbury is frequently defended transgenderism as a valid concept. Uh, you know, he's he's defended and advocated for some of the very worst pieces of legislation for religious freedom, for the safety of children that we've ever seen. And so the idea. It's really it's interesting to me to see when you realize, you know, um, what a what a huge constitutional catastrophe the breakup of the Wales's marriage was in the 90s and then how important it was for for members of the royal family not to be divorced prior to that or indeed to marry somebody um, who was divorced. That you could make the case that, that Prince Charles is now substantially more conservative than the Church of England on on any number of issues and that they, the Church of England has outpaced him in its commitment to to postmodernism. So what do we like with with the Church of England being so post-Christian in my view to begin with? Does that does that title does that role mean anything anyways? Well, it's a very good question and I think the best way is to break it up into the three parts that you covered as you described the question and that would be history, theory and practice. So in terms of history, the 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 title defender of the faith was a title that the Pope gave to Henry VIII for defending the seven sacraments against Luther. Uh, and then it was very embarrassing because uh, Henry then began to change his position, certainly as regards the papacy. And so um, it was withdrawn. For some strange reason, the English Parliament were very proud of this title. So um, they gave it. It comes not from the Pope anymore. It comes from the House of Commons. They gave it to, to the Queen, to Queen Elizabeth. Um, so the role defender of the faith now is something that the English Parliament decided to give as a kind of compensatory piece of pretentiousness to the monarch. Say, well, never mind that we split away from the Pope, and never mind we don't have the Pope saying you're defender of the faith. We'll call you defender of the faith and say, well, for what that's worth. <laughs> the next thing is that the Church of England is a composite alliance of different churches. It isn't even a single church. It's a, an attempt to to stitch together. Uh, a, a pragmatic alliance across across Protestant denominations. So it excludes Puritans and Calvinists and Presbyterians at one end, and it excludes Roman Catholics at the other, and it tries to gather everybody in the middle into a kind of loose uh, alliance. And the alliance hasn't ever held. It's always, the church has always been divided into three or four parts. Um, and it's been exciting when the Wesley's came along the evangelical part leapt into prominence and when newman came along the anglo-catholic part leapt into prominence and at the end of the 20th 19th century the liberal part leapt into prominence there's been a kind of tripartite civil war between the three elements uh, which has made it very difficult for it to be a church it's it's really a, a sort of a, a religious forum for people who don't want to be who don't want to be calvinists or roman catholics 
Um, so that, that's so the title doesn't mean anything. The, the the theory is that you you have a church that's not held together by anything at all apart from a form of instinctive religious nationalism uh, that particularly comes to the fore in times of war or crisis. Uh, and then you have the issue of practice. Well, um, if you don't have any any ethical document, any statement of faith uh, beyond the thirty nine articles, which were a, a repudiation of, of Rome, uh, written in the seventeenth century, um, then anyone can interpret the Bible as they like. Uh, and, and one of the things that's happened as the as the Church of England grew increasingly intellectually pretentious, a lot of its but bishops and theologians decided they didn't even believe in the bible so we had bishops rubbishing the resurrection rubbishing the virgin birth rubbishing the idea of heaven and hell well this has gone on for quite a long time and it's no surprise in the end that it's had some serious effect there's been something of an evangelical and charismatic revival uh in the in the 60s and 70s uh, of the last century but it's it's diffused now and what you're left with is a church that's desperate to be popular and one of the reasons why the Archbishop of Canterbury has outstripped even Charles in terms of his progressivism is because uh, so few people go are Anglicans and practice Anglicanism. Uh, and of those that do, they divide into these, these three or four different camps. That is a tiny, it's a tiny group of people not held together by anything apart from the fact that they're, they're not Calvinists and they're not Catholics. Um and you have to ask, well, what, what future is there in that? And the answer quite clearly is, along with a lot of the Protestant Reformation historic churches, there is no future in it. Essentially, Christianity is dividing into, well, orthodoxy has always been there. So let's take, the, let's take orthodoxy for granted for the moment. But outside, outside orthodoxy in the West, it's dividing into Catholicism and Pentecostalism. And the Reformation uh, rationalism is, is, is evaporating away quite quickly. So I think the future will either be Pentecostal or Catholic, um, and and therefore uh, Anglicanism will it it'll disappear? I would think quite near the end of my life. It's not. It's it statistically and demographically, it's not going to last past twenty thirty, thirty forty. What I find interesting about the conundrum uh, that the royal family faces now is when you talk about you know this need for popularity, which to some degree in our egalitarian age. You do need, and the Church of England, of course, with with no morals uh, or actual beliefs to fix itself to, is now focused on maintaining its own existence. And this is what happens when people lose the plot, right? They, you know, their own their only real purpose in life is to ensure the continued existence of the institution they're a part of. Now, one of the primary difficulties, though, is if you see the royal family taking this route, it's primarily the kinds of traditionalists so despised by Harry and Meghan and perhaps the others we don't know that support monarchy to begin with. Um, like I myself, I'm a dual American Canadian citizen. And I, I love the idea of monarchy because it does seem to me to be, you know, I think you put it really well when you say that this, this mythic drama, it is something above ourselves. I like the idea of a constitutional monarchy. I love the idea that Justin Trudeau doesn't get to accord to himself all of the flair <laughs> of the flair and drama. And I don't think any of the recent UK prime ministers um, should have had access to that either. So as Peter Hitchens often puts it, I like the idea that there is this family that gets to take on all the ceremonial roles, if only to keep them out of the hands of, of other people. Um, Absolutely. 
But now you, but when you have this scenario where it's traditionalists like like myself who would support the monarchy, and yet they're attempting to remain popular by appealing to movements and views that are repulsive to me. And let's face it, at the end of the day, those those people are never going to ever, ever be able to support the idea of monarchy. So the royal family seems to have, you know, faced quite a Gordian knot here that to remain popular, they have to distance themselves from those who support the concept of monarchy. And yet those that they ingratiate themselves to are, I think, dispositionally incapable of supporting monarchy. What is your take on that? That uh, how, how do you have I summarized the Gordian knot properly? Well, I want to thank you for, articul for articulating it so so well, because this is exactly the argument I was making in my piece, saying that by developing an interfaith and re relativistic position, it undermines fatally their long-term prospects, because it alienates the only people who ever who will ever vote for them, or as in support them. You know, we, people like you and me, traditionalists who understand the role, the role and the importance of monarchy, both psychologically and historically and culturally and politically, mm -hmm. keeps the Trudeaus away from their from the throne. Mm -hmm. um, but if you but if you if you alienate those people who no one else is going to support you when the, you know we would be the one group who would come to their aid when when the, when it gets stressed and the cookies down there you know we take to the streets to defend them we won't now because they're not defending us then there was the compact between the constituency uh, who would support monarchy and who monarchy is intended to, to support and the monarchy itself has been broken by what Charles has done. And that's why I, I thought it was important to try and to try and say that because um, only by only by being a, a Christian insider can Charles inhabit the monarchy properly and stay in a proper relationship to the people who would the only people who would offer him support when they're going gets rough. So I think you articulated it beautifully. And, Thank you for doing it. So, so you 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 kind of laid out in your piece the the problem was with uh, and in this conversation the problems with with Charles's uh, Christmas speech, right? The fact that he addressed Christianity as an outside admirer, um, much like Churchill would have, right, as a bulwark of the faith, supporting the church from the outside rather than the inside, as as, as Churchill famously said. And so I guess uh, just as a, a sort of a final question before I ask you for a single anecdote about the royal family based on all of your interactions would be what would your long-term prognosis be? Because when you write a column analyzing a problem, the obviously the goal is to have to have that problem addressed or to draw attention to it in a way that that ensures that somebody might try, try, try to rectify it. But if you had to give your best observer and your best writer's analysis of of where this is headed, what would you what would you guess? Well, um the kind of prophecy I believe in is is trying to speak the mind of the Lord into the public space rather than fore, foretelling what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But it's not difficult to see that we have very a very serious problem with freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, and freedom of the individual as we face this very fierce collectivism from the left that's come upon us. Uh, and whatever you whatever you describe it, it's it's a variant of of the appalling Marxism that has. Mao Zedong killed 90 million people in, in China. Stalin killed between 40 and 60 million. Uh, the, the toll that totalitarian leftism has taken in the last 150 years is terrifying. And it's 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 uh, it's got its fingers around the windpipe of America and Europe. So we're in a very serious position. And what we say about the monarchy, I think, is contingent upon that analysis of our cultural survival. By giving up Christianity, we've 
given up any recognition of the worth of the individual, which we've replaced with a kind of collectivism of one sort or another. And um, we've given up the primacy of the individual conscience and replaced that with some form of political corrective guilt. So in those circumstances, the monarchy entirely depends upon the survival of our democracy and of the of our autonomy. And we're having to fight very hard indeed for it. We're, we're, who knows in the next... Um, well, in, in one can guess that in the next... My thought always has been that the, we've got until 2030 in Europe uh, to try and survive this leftish assault. And it looks like we're not going to. Um, I can't see any I can't see any evidence at all that there's there's a brake that can be applied or a steering wheel that can be turned. Uh, you know, I'd like I'd like to know where they are if they're there. So if, if there's no brake and no steering wheel, we're we're really in very serious trouble. And when the the police recently arrested a woman standing on the sidewalk in, mm. in Birmingham uh, and asked her if she was praying, and when she said she was, they arrested her. I mean, that's that's how serious it is. Uh so we've got till 2030 to survive this assault. And then after that, we then have Islam. Islam is waiting its time. Demographically, this this demographically, the British Islands will be Islamic by 2050 if nothing changes and there's no evidence anything will change. So we've got the death of Christian culture at the hands of, of a very fierce leftism, followed by a serious assault between the left and Islam uh, between, 19, between 2030 and 2050. Um, my concern is what's going to happen in the next seven years. Well, I'm I'm fighting as hard as I can to keep to keep the left at bay for as long as we can, uh, and the monarchy will depend upon how successful you and I are as we do that. Uh, it's entirely dependent upon the survival of Christian values. Um, there's no evidence at all that our Christian values are going to last more than seven years. Um, I hope they do. I mean, I really hope they do, and I'm. I'm doing everything I can to put my weight to that wheel as a as a believing Christian. But um, there's nothing in the Bible or in tradition that says the guarantees we're going to win. I mean, what, what I like is that, is, is that the Holy Spirit is bringing people's souls to life throughout the world in great numbers. And what's happened in Russia between 1989 and, nine, and now, whatever view you take about the present conflict in Ukraine, it's still utterly miraculous that that um, a country devoid of any Christians at all in 1989 has found that something like 60 or 70% of Russians identify as Russian Orthodox. You know, what they do with that politically and sacramentally, that's not our business, but that it happened is a miracle. Uh, the number of, the, the fact that there are millions of Christians in China is mm. absolutely a, a complete and utter miracle. Uh, Africa, the, it's in a kind of stable state between Islam and Christianity, but Christianity is 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 doing quite well there. The only place it's doing really, really badly is where you and I are. Uh, and um, so for the moment, I have to recognize that we may go down. Every, there's every sign that we are going to go down. And I'm not saying that to be to be melodramatic or, 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 or self-pitying. I'm partly saying it because if, if we don't... If we don't say it, any energy, commitment, hope and longing that we and some fellow travellers might otherwise uh, bring to the fore will just disappear. We have to call. We have to shout fire. The house is on fire. Mm -hmm. um, we have to try and energise people to fight as in as in struggle for <laughs> uh, for um, for those things that God has given us and that have produced one of the most beautiful cultures ever has been and so 
Uh, I'm afraid I think that the next seven years, both for the church and democracy in the West and the monarchy, are a make or break point. That would be a really good and motivating note to end on. But I really do want to ask you the one final question is in your nine years in that role and your interactions with the royal family, you can't reveal private conversations. But is there one anecdote you can share for all of those who are still committed fans of the House of Windsor? I think I think the silliest one and my favorite really uh, is is when uh, I saw Prince Philip, who by this time knew me a little bit. Uh, he came late to a reception, and it turned it turned out he'd been opening a sewage works in Slough and had come <laughs> from there to to Windsor Castle a bit late. So I saw him arrive, and he made a beeline for me to say hello. And I said, "Hello, good afternoon, sir." So, where have you just come from? And looking over his shoulder, he said, "Well, through that bloody door, of course." <laughs> <laughs> and we both we both had a a, a, a cocktail together. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Tasted each other's health. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been very fascinating. Well, very kind of you to have me on. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you for such an intelligent conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Gavin Ashenden. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We do hope you enjoyed this show, that you'll subscribe to get this show delivered to you or to check out past shows. You can get The Van Maren Show wherever you get your podcast content. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week.